It's Ask TNA Day. Does overanalyzing kill the beauty of sex? We discuss the nuances of sex and all it offers with Tate, a practicing cuddle dom. What's that, you ask? I'm glad you're listening. This is TNA Talk Sex, and I'm T. Welcome, welcome. This is episode 140, y'all. <laughs> That's a lot of talk time about sex and my sex and... <laughs> Not mine. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you're, um, we're going to find out about you. Uh, so guys, we are, we got a wonderful question in from someone who I really, I really appreciated the note and, uh, and we're going to go into that about, um, you know, can knowing too much kill the experience? I think on the surface level, the answer is no. And we're going to tell you why. (laughs) And we're going to learn about, um, the work and experiences that Tate has had, who I met at a cuddle party the other day. Hey, thanks for joining us, Tate. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. So, um, so I'm going to read the email that we got in. Um, if anyone ever wants to write us questions, they can write at advice at tatalksex.com. Uh, and we answer them at the end of every month. So I really liked this one. It was so sweet. So a gentleman from Israel wrote us and he was asking if overanalyzing kills the beauty in sex. Mm. Um, so he said, uh, so I've been doing a marathon on your podcasts, hearing your rich life experience and thoughts on those topics. And something came to mind. Do we overanalyze things and kill the beauty of them? Like someone who sees something for the first time and how excited they are compared to repeated viewing and the excitement level is going down each viewing. It feels to me that people today have so much choice that it's overloading their senses and they want to experience everything. Not saying it's a bad thing, but how do you end up knowing what you want when you have endless choices? In Hebrew, there's a saying, I can't speak Hebrew, tafasta meruba lo tafasta, which is like catching everything, catching nothing, because at the end you are alone. Mm. I know. Well said, by the way, first of all, mm-hmm. um, which gave me pause. I was like, does it kill it? And, you know, I think I always I've always had that fear a little bit of the catch everything, catch nothing. Like, mm. what's your focus? What are you doing in life? Right. And I think, Tate, you know, you talk about that as well, the, specifically the work you're doing. I mean, it's sort of a I feel like it's a journey just to get to that process, like what you actually want to be doing, the nuances of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, I mean, you've started, you started in a lot of different areas only yeah. to maybe finally find what brings you satisfaction. Mm, yeah. I mean, his question brought up a few different strong points for me. The first thing that kind of came to mind in listening about his description of somebody seeing something for the first time versus repeated viewings, the thing that came to me was kind of thinking about a scientist. So like the first time a scientist sees a phenomena, I'm sure it's really impactful and gorgeous, but then each time that they see it, one must assume that they're going deeper and deeper with the subject matter. So seeing it in more clarity and seeing it in higher resolution and more detail, therefore it getting more exciting each time as opposed to less exciting. Exactly. Well, I have the same feelings, of course. And I, I think, well, I think the risk of what he's asking is, um, and I think we see it in, in relationships with people even. Uh, I mean, you could say the same thing applies to marriage, right? You get married. Mm. Does it become less special? Well, that's up to you. Well, I'm not going to get married, but. <laughs> well, sure. I, which is a, a topic to discuss. But I, I guess I just mean, that's funny. So you, in your opinion, if you get married, that is the death of, of a dynamic. Uh, it's so complex, but I personally don't believe that any human can really own another human. And so that's to me what marriage represents. The way that it's defined, Mm -hmm. the way people use it now. Well, all right. So maybe a better phrase would be, so you say you commit to someone Mm -hmm. and you say, we're going to walk this road of life. We're doing it together. Maybe we're going to have a family as well, you Mm -hmm. know, have children. Um, it can become mind numbing, right? And you lose your way, but how do you reinvigorate it? How do you continue Mm -hmm. to delve deeper? And I think that's always the answer to everything you do. Mm -hmm. Um, The minute that you start taking it for granted or don't view it as, um, I don't know, when you stop mining, when you stop digging, kind of. Mm, When you uh, stop looking for what makes it special. Yeah, or or stop trying to gain greater knowledge in its intricacies. Yeah, I mean, if... (laughs) I mean, that plays into a larger social thing where we don't value learning beyond what we consider the schooling years. And so a lot of people fall into what they feel is a repetitive, monotonous lifestyle of going to work and doing the same thing every day, going home to the same partner every day, 
uh, living in the same place probably for their whole lives and that kind of a thing. Whereas if we can adopt uh, an idea of being curious about everything forever, then we can constantly be learning and growing and delving deeper. Yeah. I mean, there are moments that I plateau in my sexuality or maybe plateau with a partner. Um, And I, I think those are moments that I've become more and more aware of. Like when when they're happening, then I go, oh, that means I need to find what does interest me right now. Mm. Yeah, it's a good cue. Yeah. Do you feel like you've had moments like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What it, can you think of one that has happened recently, or not recently necessarily, but a moment where you had to f- seek out something else? I mean, yeah, I actually just broke up with a long-term partner, and that was a really difficult decision to make. But the bottom line was that we were entering into fifth or sixth round of a specific behavioral pattern together and that represented a plateau to me and something that didn't have the propensity to change in our current dynamic and so needing to break out of the pattern right create space mm-hmm. is that i wonder if that's the only way to do it oh i don't know but that was the only way i could see but you know once you're when once you're in something you have very limited resources to choose from right you yeah. feel you do yeah Interesting. I feel like I, uh, let's see the, I'm like coming back to the question. I just did the same thing in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. The overanalyzing does overanalyzing kill it. Okay. Well, we have 140 episodes talking about sex. (laughs) You're working as a cuddle dom, which I would love for you to explain a little bit. Yeah. By the way, everyone, you can find Tate's info on cuddle, Mm cuddledom.com. And you're going to spell that D O M M E cuddle dom.com. Yeah. It's so cute that it rhymes. Right? (laughs) But okay, so tell us a little bit about what that is. And then we're going to talk about delving deeper and what that looks like and why it's wonderful instead of, you know, a killer. (laughs) So cuddle dom, which means that professionally, I both cuddle and dominate people for a living. To me, those both fall under the same category of touch therapy. And they're both platonic industries, the way that I practice them. So... A lot of times people come to me seeking intimate connection, whether that be through soft touch or through harder touch or through an intimate personal dynamic that can be created where either I'm in charge of a certain time, place and setting, or we come together to have a platonic acceptance and appreciation of each other. The aim is really therapeutic. So it's really to let go of shame and anxiety and to de-stress and to share humanity. Nice. So, okay, when I hear Dom, I assume that there's some sort of like rough involvement. Well, okay. So so a lot of people who don't know anything about BDSM will say, oh, I could never do that. I don't like pain. And for me, BDSM doesn't have to involve any physical interaction whatsoever it can be completely mental Um, but even as far as physical interaction goes I see it less as me giving someone pain as much as me giving someone intense sensation Mm -hmm. because that's how I experience it myself I switch in my personal life so I won't do anything to anybody that I can't take myself and I don't experience BDSM as pain but I experience it as intense sensation. And if it approaches pain, then I let my partner know and we back off. Yeah. I, well, I, you know, we had a guest on a while back that talked about um, impact play. Mm -hmm. And I just like that word so much because it's definitely not in the mainstream, but the point is, yeah, greater intensity um, of, of an experience. Um, Yeah. Sort of like how, you know, maybe back in the day, I didn't think I'd ever want to be like, hit in the face during sex and the truth is I don't want to be hit in the face but impact play which is like a firm tap (laughs) you know has arousal Well, it's firm and controlled I think is the thing that makes it feel safe yeah well said well and it's also it's not it doesn't like you're saying it's not pain because you're not hitting the wrong angles and angles are so important like when you do it um yeah it's a very precise art yeah it is cool um how does it, okay, cuddle dom, so does it, is it happening together? You're dominating through the act of cuddling? Well, I mean, in a meta sense, I would argue yes. Like coming to my studio for a cuddle session is a form of submission because you're submitting to my space, my rules, my energy, all of that. 
Um, but as far as specific sessions go, um, if a client wants both, then I have them book a dom session and then a cuddle session afterwards, or we can do like 30 minutes of cuddling and then a dom session and then 30 minutes afterwards. But I like to, whatever the situation is, if they're going to book both to have a little bit of the cuddling be after for aftercare. Yeah. Do you find that you get to know your clients in a way that allows you to dominate in the way that they desire? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so the whole thing about the practice is to have explicit consent at every step. In both cuddling and domination, there's a very specific line of communication that needs to be open. So I am continuously checking in. The first conversation is usually like, hey, this is what I like. What do you like? This is what I don't like. What do you not like? Uh, what are you interested in exploring? What can I offer to you? How do these line up? And then throughout the session, checking in like on a scale of one to 10, what's your intensity level? And where would you like to be? And yellow, if I'm approaching your limit, red, if we need to talk, like very constantly making sure that at every step, whatever is happening is what both people really want. Yeah. Do you, how does this like, um, transfer over into your actual relationships like do you actually now that you have these sort of skill sets do you find yourself using it in your personal life oh yeah I found that it's made me a way better lover and friend and communicator in business and in general uh being able to check in with people and make sure that I have their consent and my own uh every step of the way is completely radicalized from how I operated even just a couple of years ago yeah, the lack of ambiguity has made my relationships a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found that uh, from going just attending cuddle parties, doing those kinds of sessions, it's such a little thing, but the being able to, so actually I, you know, I invited some friends who'd never been. And I think anyone who's listening, um, we did a show in December with people who host the cuddle parties uh, at Cuddle Sanctuary, but they um, immediately people kind of assume like, wait, so you're going to be in this mosh pit of people touching you, right? Um, you know, like, well, what if I don't want that? And, and in fact, the whole point is being able to draw those boundaries. Yeah. Um, and that no one touches you if you don't want to be touched and you can say yes and, or no, and you can ask the person and ask someone and they can tell you yes or no. And there's, you know, a space to go by yourself where everyone acknowledges that that's where no one touches you at all, or even asks you to be touched um and and for me it was it was empowering because I'd never been in an environment that exercised those so clearly right those skill sets but also um you know I mentioned this at the cuddle party party where we met I one of my bigger things was that I I didn't ask people like I always thought everyone needed a good hug right and I definitely would like invade people's space Mm. um most of the time it's well received Mm -hmm. right like I'm a bubbly attractive woman um but now you know I even pick up on there are people who will say yes to a hug and I can feel their energy Mm -hmm. you know I can feel like okay this is you know a quick tap they're not they don't feel open to hugging fully and then there's these magical gifts where the people who love to hug fully you know Mm -hmm. um and then you're able to mirror that and give back to them yeah for me the most beautiful thing about the consent culture that the cuddle parties generate is that no's are celebrated and are thanked like thank yeah. you for taking care of yourself i think is such a beautiful phrase that has infused my life with a lot of, a lot more self-assuredness because you can gracefully accept somebody's rejection and that's its own pleasure in and of itself yeah yeah agreed i also hadn't experienced a lot of that i feel like maybe in dating i'd stumbled upon occasional people who did that you know or i'd found them accidentally but people who maybe validate in that way but it's very rare mm-hmm. and um and since then, I've been able to like exercise that muscle as well and say, you know, thank you to people or, uh, you know, even today, just with my roommate, this parking pass thing where <laughs> I was looking for hers and she said, well, I have it. And, um, and, you know, I said something like, oh, congratulations for, you know, having your car and everything squared away. And, um, and I think she was surprised by the positivity of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, oh, it's, it's not a problem. Like nothing's a problem. Yeah. It's just information yeah, that I'm taking in. Our own needs, and that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you just feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting for me coming out of the cuddle parties and to bring it back to the question of overanalyzing, <laughs> does it kill? I don't think it does. I think it continues to bring epiphanies and better self-knowledge, um, self-awareness, and then you function better in, in your daily life. Um, but coming out of cuddle parties, what 
has consistently happened for me when I'll, I'll backstep a little, sometimes when I don't go to the parties, I feel myself shutting down. Right. Or I find more negative thoughts will come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I become more self-centered and I, and I'll feel agitated that certain things aren't happening the way I want them to. You're losing your sense of connectivity. Yeah. So then I go to an event and I'll have the cuddle experience. And, um, before I've even left, I'll already be having ideas of how I can give to others. Like it's, it's a mental switch and I all of a sudden feel centered and fulfilled and like I have energy to give to others. Mm. Um, and, and so, and then I, and then I act on it and everything's, you know, rosy and great. And well, you know, what's interesting is the heart that you're wearing. When my friend and I started this project, uh, we were in, we were under a lot of stress because we had taken on a lot of creative projects like film shoots and stuff like that. And whenever one of us would get in a grumpy mood, we would send the other one downstairs into the city of New York and be like, okay, go downstairs and hand out 10 hearts and then come back. (laughs) Oh, wow. And the other person would feel a million times better. So I'm wearing a little heart pin that we're going to post a photo on Instagram, uh, which is at TA Talk Sex. But uh, (laughs) but yeah, you kindly gave me this great little heart that I can pin on my shirt. Um, but that's amazing. So you would run downstairs and then, and it was always fulfilling or like what's, Oh yeah. Because the, I think you touched on it, like the act of giving, like you receive when you give. And so the act of giving something to somebody else and making a human connection, uh, fills a part of yourself that can get very easily worn down when we're constantly thinking about logistics or planning or using our prefrontal cortex in a way that doesn't activate our human pleasure centers. Yeah, well said. I think that hits on a big cultural issue. I think the norm is to be operating pretty consistently in our prefrontal cortex. Mm. And I'm becoming more and more aware and sensitive to even my what I consider personal relationships and the way that we engage. And I realize so much of it's auditory, right? Like we talk Mm. and there's more talking and there's more talking and there's talk about like what you're doing. And I think sometimes like with family, like I just visited family this weekend even then you fall into these routines where you say, well, what did you do? Yeah. Right. And you start, you start the rattling list of things like, well, I went here and then I went there and then I did this, right. right. But there's no, what did you see? Who did you touch? What was exciting about it? What was, yeah. what was fulfilling? Does it fulfill you? Why or why not? Yeah. Right. Those are conversations you want to be having. And those are the deeper questions that are actually analytical in that sense, which does come back to the question so I think that the more you analyze something, the deeper you're able to go. Therefore, the more fulfilling and beautiful it can be. Agreed. <laughs> Are we just going to agree about everything? I think so. Actually, this has been a common theme. So since we met, we have odd parallels of our in our childhood and everything. And uh, and it's it's been delightful connecting and talking about things where we agree 100%. <laughs> Including on the fact that we decided to cuddle for almost an hour before doing this podcast. Yeah, we did a little cuddle session before getting on the air. Yeah, two professional cuddlers coming together and then doing a podcast about sex. It's kind of ideal. Yeah, it was. It was. It's interesting, I will say, and I, I almost, hmm, I part of me was like, oh, do we have to be as clear in a way because we speak the same language when we decided to cuddle. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's a little bit like, well, we don't, we didn't, you know, we don't talk as much about like, Hey, we need you know do the exercise of like, yes and no. And I wondered if that is important anyway, to still like reaffirm the idea of saying no to each other. Mm. And I say that maybe more for my own personal life where I think when I'm in a relationship with someone and by that I mean so I'm there's an attraction or I really like this person we get along so immediately I let more boundaries down Mm. um with the person that I trust right like I'm gonna be like oh you're my people like so I yeah great so and and I then maybe my issue is probably my (laughs) revealing vulnerable moment my issue might be that I don't say no as readily because I want to I want you to be happy right yeah it sounds to me like you have the tendency to give blanket consent to people who you like yes I do yeah and there's a huge (laughs) danger in doing that tell me more well I recently (laughs) I recently gave blanket consent to a friend of mine after I gave him a couple of cuddle sessions I told him you have blanket consent for soft touches uh and he got really excited about this because that meant that he had upgraded and he didn't have to ask for every single thing he wanted to do. 
Uh, but he also noticed the boundary of the type of consent I gave him and said, I think that's really smart. And like blanket consent in general, even in romantic, like very close relationships sounds unhealthy. Yeah. Well, right. Because you stop asking mm-hmm. and then you stop seeing where you kind of, you lose sight of your, of your identity, really. Yeah, your personhood, your autonomy. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Huh. Well, that's an easy fix. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually an easy fix. It's just asserting the boundary of, because I think what you, what you hit on is interesting. It's like, there is definitely a level of blanket consent because of, of um, a comfort with someone. So then it's saying, yeah, up to this point, because that's the level of trust we've created. Mm-hmm. And I think also articulating what the contract dynamic is in your relationship. Mm. That's something that I haven't. Can you expand on that a little? Yes. I, yes, let's discuss. <laughs> uh, I haven't, I haven't actually done it. It's something I think I want to start acting on, but I think it's when you discuss more firmly, like what interaction or dynamic you want to have with this person. Mm-hmm. So I think I mentioned earlier to you, I was chatting with a young woman who said she has a, uh, light, she is a lifestyle sub in her dynamic with mm-hmm. her partner. And I thought, Oh God, that sounds really complex. Like, where do you start? And in a way, is that a blanket? you know, that's a bit of a blanket, um, for abuse, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Blanket consent. Uh, but I think she has a detailed contract with him that they revisit every year and, and reorder what they, what they want their dynamic to be. Um, so that got me thinking about all of my relationships and what are our agreements. And the truth is that we've all consented to some agreement. That's why we're in the dynamic, Mm -hmm. but often through subtext, right? It's not spelled out. It's never actually said, but you kind of slide into it because you go, okay, well I tried this and I tried that through my actions and this was accepted and this wasn't, and this is our new dynamic. And these appear to be the boundaries, right? But we haven't, we haven't verbally confirmed them. Mm hmm. And I found that my relationship that came to an end, my long-term relationship, I think we had made many contractual agreements that weren't being talked about mm. outwardly. And uh, and when I think back on it, I think that what kind of snapped the back was, you know, I think in some ways he had broken the contract with me in, in subtle ways. So I started to act out. So I was mm. breaking the I maybe more aggressively punched the contract. And then, and then of course he said, well, we just, we just broke our agreement. Mm-hmm. Now this is the subtext version. None of this was ever said. Right. Right. But, yeah. but why are we getting angry and like inflaming in these ways? Right. I think it's because for me, the thing that's been so transformative about the experience of cuddle culture and consent culture is that once I know exactly where the boundary lies with the person who I'm interacting with, that part of my brain that is constantly wondering the prey part, that's like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? That mm-hmm. part gets to go to bed. Because mm. once you know where the boundary is and you've established that you trust that person because you've both agreed to it, that part can take a rest and then you can just be present with that person. And so for me, learning that I could just do that in general, I could verbally outline everything that I want to happen and not to happen with the ability to change my mind at any point made me realize like, oh, cool, I can just live my life once I am in situations with people who have also agreed to this. Yeah. And do you find for me, I immediately think of how much energy is saved. Like you're not running at this distraction, which is what's going on, what's going on, what's going on but rather just clarity and then engagement and the engagement. The beautiful part of that is then you're freed up to actually observe the person you're with and to observe the changes in their body language, depending on slight movements. And you can observe their breathing and how they react to a variety of stimulus. And you can actually learn that person far better than if you were kind of what you think is allowing them to be free, which is to be without boundaries. But in that case, they're both of your minds are distracted. Yeah, well, because then you're always guessing. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm just thinking about how my next thought is, and I think something I've been working on too, is um, when you meet someone that maybe hasn't studied at the level that we have, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've actively sought it out. I have this show. I'm going to these events. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I'd encourage people to go to an event like that. But, um, you know, I go, okay, I'm, I'm engaging with someone that maybe hasn't had this experience or maybe step back a bit. Like if I talk to my girlfriends about dating and they're dating someone, it's that classic thing of, well, what is he thinking? I don't want to ask him this. Da, da, da. And, and more and more I say, I'm like, 
text them exactly what you just said to me. Mm-hmm. That's right? been my advice to my friends since high school. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was my advice. And then I got like tricked out of it for a little mm-hmm. while. And then I like went back to it. But exactly. It's like, mm-hmm. just say it. Mm-hmm. And then you will know. And we talked about yesterday. It's a no lose situation. Because if you say what's on your mind or you ask what's on your mind and the person doesn't like you asking or saying that, then you lost someone who doesn't appreciate the processes going on in your brain. So whatever. But if they do respond affirmatively, then you have a deeper connection with that person. Great. Yeah, yeah. And I think, right, neither way you've preserved your sanity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, really? And, you know, we were talking about that idea of sanity and sanity, like, when do you cross the line? I actually find more and more in my life how fragile it actually is. And and by that, I mean, okay, how are we defining insane? When you're not in the present, for me, when you're not in the present, I'm defining it. Okay, I'm defining it from Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. I thought it was a great example of... Um, when you're thinking too much about the future, when you're thinking too much about the past, and that's all you can talk about while sitting with someone in the present. Um, he says, you know, you're, you're insane. You've lost your mind. And I thought, wow, that's so simple. It's really easy to understand. How much am I in my head thinking about something else instead of the pleasure of being in this space with this person or what the, that dynamic can offer? The awe of existing at all. Yeah. And I find that when I'm using, like you were saying, the prey part of the brain where you're, you're going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? To me, that's insanity. Like mm. that is wasted energy. That's just distraction. And you're pedaling, right? Yeah. The act of pedaling, but without a direction. For sure. Yeah. So sometimes you want to pedal towards something, <laughs> but that's going to be a different part of the brain. Right. Of course. And within the paradigm you've set up of insanity being past or present, um, So there's the problem of I'm concerned about the past, I'm concerned about the future, Uh, but then there's either a solution or a distraction, and the solution can be let's talk about this and set up parameters that make me feel comfortable, or there's the distraction of letting that part of your brain run on endlessly, wondering what's going to happen. There can be there can be a I don't I wouldn't call it a pleasure, but maybe it's like a laziness that lets you stay in that space. I mean, do you have those moments where you have to check yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, they happen constantly. <laughs> like, I've a long time ago, I had a friend who got me started on playing the rejection game, which is to go up to a stranger, start up a conversation, and kind of keep escalating the interaction until they shut you down. Uh, and to Oh, hilarious. Right? Okay, tell me more. And to do this conditions you against the fear of getting rejected. So mm-hmm. rejection is like an innate, deep psychological fear because in tribal communities where we all started if you got rejected then you were excommunicated from the tribe and you starved to death (laughs) right oh god oh yeah well that makes sense but even with by the way i was talking about my intimacy issues like i love acting right and i'm a performer and when i'm doing that i feel freedom to express myself completely emotionally right but when i'm in an interpersonal relationship with a partner um fear totally comes up and I'm not expressing myself yeah. as clearly. The stakes feel higher. Right. Cause they could reject me and then I will be out in the cold. <laughs> but actually you'll still be in your nice warm little house. That's true. Cause I have one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So getting rejected on a consistent basis kind of inoculates you against the immense fear of it. And so especially before going in for an interview or uh, any sort of like high stakes thing to go get rejected by a random stranger gives you a sense of empowerment. Oh, that's brilliant. That's great advice. Everyone listening, do that before you go on a job interview. (laughs) But really, right? I think, and I agree with that. It's like the minute that you exercise that same problem, like in a, in a metaphorical way with someone else, you feel empowered and you're able to execute that actual event Mm -hmm. with clarity. Yeah. And in the case of intimate relationships, being able to say what's on your mind, even if it's the scariest possible thing, just pushing through and saying it and, experiencing the reaction of the other person that's what empowers you to maintain your boundaries and keep a container for your sanity (laughs) sounds great uh we're gonna take a little break um you can find information on tate at cuddledom.com dom d-o-m-m-e just so you know don't just put in d-o-m d-o-m-m-e and, uh, and then you can find more of our information at TA Talk Sex. If you guys have any questions that you want to write us, you can write advice at tatalksex.com. We will answer your questions. If we don't know the answers, we will find an expert who does. 
In the meantime, I would like to tell you all about BioClarity, which is currently our sponsor for our show. Um, And they've been great. And I've been washing my face with it for an entire month. I filmed a whole movie uh, where they didn't let me wear any makeup. And and I was washing my face with it. Thank God. My face is baby butt smooth. Right, Tate? Oh, yeah. Glowing. (laughs) So my favorite part about the BioClarity is that they have a product called Floralux and it's this like green goop that you put on your face after you've washed your face uh, with the gel and it's uh, made of chlorophyll and all of the products are 100% vegan, cruelty-free, gluten-free, paraben-free. And perhaps the best part is their acne treatment doesn't use um, the harsh products that most Uh, products actually have in them. It's actually a salicylic acid. So it's just more mild, which is really nice. I've also been using that on the occasional bump that did appear on my face. Um, So uh, let BioClarity help give you the confidence of clear skin to help take on life. Just go to BioClarity.com. Our listeners get their first month for only $9.95 plus free shipping. That's a $20 savings and it comes with 100% risk-free money back guaranteed. But you need to enter our code TATOXX, just like all our social media it's ta talk sex uh and again that's bioclarity.com and the code is ta talk sex and we're back now to the show tna talk sex we're chatting with tate who has lots of experience in cuddle and um doming <laughs> that was a terrible intro tate what is is this the only type of work you do right now do you have any like do you do any sort of sex work? No, you're just, this is actually platonic work. This is, uh, this is platonic work. Uh, the domination sessions can become sensual, but they never cross the line into being sexual. And for my own personal traumatic reasons, I don't engage in like actual sex work. Yeah. Um, but I totally support it and think that it should all be legal and celebrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a show about that too, everyone, about oh, sex workers unite, yeah, and talking about the feminist movement and where's the line drawn, which is a whole other complex thing about the way our culture looks at sex. Um, but oh, it's so poisonous. Yeah, I well, I think it's really interesting what you said about having your own experiences that you don't um, do that, and obviously, it's, I mean, legal issues in the U.S. But, but. Do you feel like in some ways you were drawn to this work also to counterbalance experiences you've had or? I think that I was drawn to sex work in the first place because I really enjoyed the ability to enrich another person's life in a very intimate sector. And then my personal experiences led me to do that, but also in a way that enriched my autonomy So learning consent, which is, I would say, the main function of both BDSM and cuddling as practices, learning how to wield that kind of vocabulary and to draw strict boundaries for myself has enriched myself as much as my clients, I think. Yeah, yeah, cool. I think that's, I mean, the same for me as well. In many ways, it's it's the curiosity and the exploration. And then once you have that skill set, you know, for me, I want to give back, um, because it is so empowering and gives you so much more control and centeredness in your life. Yeah. Um, as we know, I mean, our show is dedicated to this, but I, I always think we were about to touch on it, which is sort of the cultural paradigm and, and the fact that I think our sexual and sensual selves are denied in a daily way. And like I was saying, we mostly talk, it's mostly planning prefrontal cortex stuff. It's, it's not, um, we don't exercise the limbic system in the way that I think it would like. Yeah. Well, and I think in, in the capacity that we can either, I think we're actually limiting our expansiveness, how much we actually have to offer. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the physicality of society that we've set up. I mean, the fact that you and I are sitting in chairs is actually, I believe, limiting our cerebral capacity. Totally. <laughs> or well for me i go okay if if i'm in the chair for this then in the next hour i should go for a walk mm-hmm. or you know do something that that creates motion right but we don't value balance in our society in that way so that's that's a unique perspective which is wonderful and should be applauded and no, i think you. a lot of people should you know what would find be greater more mindful about yeah. how they use their bodies Do you find like clients that come to you, are they sometimes kind of first time exploring this? And, and if so, I don't know, have you talked to them about like, how did they come to find you and, 
and why why are they seeking you yeah so i do get a lot of first timers uh i actually recently got to give this person their first bdsm experience when they they told me they had been masturbating to bdsm porn for 20 years (gasps) so they yeah so they had their first submissive experience and my favorite thing about it is the unbreakable grin on their faces after the session (laughs) is over um but they usually find me because they feel a deep sense of shame about their desires to explore this realm. And so yeah. they want to find somebody whose job it is to accept them. Yeah. And I think, you know, having met you as well, there's sort of a a safe quality in your non-judgmentalness. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I've, I've met other people who perhaps dom, but there's maybe an aggressiveness in their nature or something that would, if you haven't gone that way, maybe that's what you fear anyway, which Mm. is like they need someone who will hold their hand into it and, and allow them to feel safe in acting out these, um, these experiences. I feel like there's also a lot of like bad porn out there. Like mm-hmm. when you're watching it, that isn't actually fulfilling the experience you want to have. I mean, the same way that, you know, as a woman, you'll watch some of it and it's like, okay, no, that's not how I want you to take me, but I want you to take me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I could talk about porn for a really long time, but specifically BDSM porn and BDSM representation in the media is completely different than my experience has been. And I was afraid of it for a long time because the BDSM porn was so intense and i thought like oh i don't want to experience something that looks like that well and it seems to actually as you hit on it mainstream seems to actually focus on the pain part and I, and from what i'm finding also i haven't i've dabbled in the exploration and i found that it's it's not about pain it's at really all about the connection between the two people right so you were saying though con- oh i was on. saying that my first proper experience of being dominated uh, by princess donna i completely lost my mind and realized that I had learned a bunch of things about myself in the space of 20 minutes. Like I was an exhibitionist. I really enjoyed being blindfolded and taken control of. And my second thought was, I want to give this to other people. And being able to say like, hey, I've been where you are. I know this is scary, but it doesn't need to be. And I want to make sure that you're comfortable every step of the way, I think is a huge relief. But the way that I had to start in the industry was working at a dungeon And I found that a lot of the commercial domination that exists has a very strict aesthetic that encourages the kind of like harsh looking, mean acting type of dominant that I don't subscribe to and I don't think is necessary. Yeah. I mean, for me, I I find it almost a little boring at this point because it's become so cliche. Yeah. So mainstream cliche. Yeah. And it's so... um... Yeah, there's there's more there's so much more nuance and interesting things happening. I feel like maybe also I I think for, even for myself I mean gosh, even when you have sex with anyone in any capacity or or sexual engagement or what am I saying? What I'm saying is uh my own fear of self-expression. And mm. I think in those moments, right, if you are quote subbing and someone is dominating you, they're going to elicit your self-expression. And feeling comfortable in that space to really express kind of what you just said that you like that you're an exhibitionist, right? But that that you're in a space where that's going to be accepted and maybe not gawked at or thought of as odd. Yeah, because that you listing those made me go, oh, what are my things? You know, and then I was like, oh God, like in front of someone, or like how well do I know them? And you know, who makes me feel so vulnerable that I can't do it? Mm. And I, I mean, for me, and this is probably why I also have a show talking about it is because I, I also know that like the minute I feel that fear and go, you know, want to pull back, I go, oh, okay, now I need to go do it. Right. <laughs> you know, leaning like, oh no. The, and I'm leaning into the uncomfortability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really just about the dominant being able to create a container that makes the submissive feel safe. End of story. Yeah. And you feel like that is what you are providing with these people. Yeah. I feel like that's the therapy, the therapeutic service I provide. Neat. Do you think like a therapist is kind of the same thing? I mean, aren't they creating a safe container? Right. But I think it's also kind of what you said earlier about how we disassociate from our emotions a lot by speaking. Mm. Um, And so by intellectualizing the feelings, that's processing in a different way. But we can physically process through touch and intimate connection. Profound. (laughs) Like, oh, my goodness. You make me feel so smart. Yeah, you are. Uh, Oh, yeah, it's, you know, invited you onto the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm uh, I'm curious about is there is there an element where you do I don't know do you use toys is there like a rougher component to it I know I keep using that word but that is the mainstream of it yeah I don't know what's Um, I have some clients who like to be physically manhandled and that's kind of my favorite like I'm personally very rough and tumble Mm -hmm. like one of my taglines is I can take a punch like (laughs) I really enjoy that kind of physicality and so when a client wants to go there with me when they want to wrestle when they want to be you know hit in certain ways like when they want to feel impacted I really enjoy being able to provide that yeah do you are there are there some days where you don't want to do that and you feel tired (laughs) I don't know yeah it's extremely emotionally draining work like I have to be very careful about my scheduling to make sure that I don't overexert myself because primarily it's a practice of empathy like I am spending that time concentratedly empathizing with the other person reading their body language listening to them reflecting back to them and so making sure that i'm mentally and physically prepared for a session i actually had to cancel a session yesterday because i was feeling a little under the weather yeah and and you have like a strong boundary for that for yourself oh yeah if i'm not feeling 100 percent, then i can't give them what i know they need yeah how do you stay charged kind of like what is do you have like a routine kind of when you notice that you aren't 100 percent? do you go do perform certain rituals uh so i realized through doing this work just how introverted i am Mm. and how much time and space i need to give myself alone in order to recharge wow so writing reading taking baths is super important baths are so good do you use epsom salts i do so do i i also have a bath candle and i light some you know some good smelling stuff (laughs) um yeah just doing things that signify to me you are taking care of yourself you know working out stretching eating healthy it's it's a continuous practice yeah can you can you work with more than one client in one in a day it very much depends. Um, I try not to. Right. I try not to. But if I do, I make sure I give myself at least an hour between them. And yeah. then also, if I'm having a new client, I don't take more than one in a day because that's an unknown variable to me. Yeah. Interesting. Do you also like, okay, so after you've had an experience with someone and you are working as an empath, I mean, you've taken in a lot of their energy. Do you do anything to kind of cleanse that as well well it's interesting a lot of people ask me like how do you keep from taking on everybody's stuff and i actually feel like i don't absorb so much as i reflect Hmm. yeah i feel like the active process of reflection is the it's the intellectualization of empathy according to nonviolent communication principles nonviolent communication is a system of communicating designed by marshall b rosenthal and he has a really good book on it um but Essentially, the way that you can empathize properly with somebody is by assessing what they're saying and reflecting it back to them. So say you were saying like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my roommate left left this out on the stove and that's so rude and blah, and I'm so upset. And it's like, okay, so it sounds like you are feeling uh, a need to be considered. Right. And a need for a clean home environment. And so then you have the chance to recognize your own needs and own your own emotions and feel good about all of that. And so that's the process that's exhausting. I don't feel like I'm absorbing everybody's anxiety or fear. Yeah, right, 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 right. It's a, it's actually, it's so interesting that you talk about like it's, it's a process and a skill set that you're, that you've mastered and that's what you're able to deliver. Far from mastered it, but I definitely practice. Sure, sure. (laughs) However you want to define it. Levels of mastery. No, (laughs) sure. I'm at base camp. (laughs) Uh, I think, well, I mean, sure. I get it. I think when you're, um, doing the work, you understand how deep and nuanced it can be. Speaking of brings mm-hmm. us to that original question, mm-hmm. uh, which is that there's always learning to be done, right? Always improvement, mm-hmm. going deeper and deeper. But I think comparatively, right, there's other people who haven't started the journey at all. This and you're true. able to facilitate that. I think, um, you know, for me, I will say, I've talked about it a bit before, but something like the cuddle party, when I reflect on where I came from, um, it's kind of a weird contrast because my mother was very physical and touching and comes from a Latin culture where it was all about physical touch. And then my, and then I lived with my father and they, he comes more from an American tradition where there's like no touch. 
And, um, and I, so I sort of almost had this like freezing out happen in my life. And then I, I remember by high school, I had anxiety about being touched at all. And I had problems with any sort of intimacy and using my own voice to say, yes, I want this or I don't. And I, I would prevent myself from being in situations where I had to do that. So I, I never, I didn't have a lot of um, harmful transgressive experiences, but I, I also wasn't reaching out to connect either, right? Yeah, it sounds like you isolated as a form of self-defense. Yeah. And uh, and so then I, I started addressing that and working on it and connecting more with people. Yay. Yeah, right. And it was like beautiful to blossom. And then I look at how even that was like, okay, but I know I have, I can gain more fulfillment and there can be more of a, a, a centered peace more balance right and and then i go well it's yeah something like cuddle parties or or feeling connection in general and actually um our friend that wrote in mentions that in his email about feeling like he doesn't want to connect with people i feel like i should pull it up exactly but he mentioned not uh not having romantic relationships because um he doesn't want to uh here it is uh he doesn't want to be connecting with people that he doesn't have feelings for, if that makes sense. Like, and I think that is a big fear. I think that came up even at the cuddle party with some of the guests Mm. this past time, which was, you know, how, how can I show physical affection and touch someone, even if it's non-sexually that's intimate and intimacy is reserved only for your partners. Right. And if I haven't chosen someone to be my partner, then I shouldn't engage in that. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that follows a paradigm that I think a lot of our society falls into, which is um, a scarcity model. Yeah. Something is reserved. Something is special. Something is only for this. I can't give this away because then I won't have any more. But the thing about intimacy is that it's it's like spreading seeds. You know? It's actually maybe the only thing that we have that's infinite. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Warm fuzzy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think for a lot of people when they come to the cuddle event, I think it's that it's surprising to them as well. Like this, this feeling of like, wow, I wasn't violated in any way. And I was still able to give this kind of affection and receive. Yeah. I think especially, um, you know, something comes up, I think for women who are, are very used to, if I show any affection or if I um, am giving in that way, it's going to be taken advantage of and I'm opening um, myself up for attack. Yeah, actually. So, you know, as I was saying, it was sort of my childhood was complex in this way where um, to that point, I was sort of very open with people that I didn't necessarily have intimacy with. Right. And I could do make I could make eye contact and I would engage in a certain way. And um, and I was happy to be flirtatious or playful or whatever with the opposite sex. And friends of mine were often like shocked or afraid or they're you know, they're going, that's going to result in like a horrible, you know, whatever. And I found that it it never did. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but I think that when you, I think I knew my boundaries in that context. What a gift! Yeah, thank you. And um and and a lot of it was a gift because I think a lot of beautiful things did come out of it, and I had that freedom to move around, and I didn't um, fear what was going to happen. I mean, I think anytime you're living in that fear space. Actually, just when I was home, I was kind of looking at my dad going, you know, he's making a lot of choices lately that feel governed by kind of a collective fear. Like it's not really defined, but it's like, oh, there are predators out there and you need to be safe. And social anxiety that's been predated on by our current administration. Yes, correct. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but it was it was fascinating to look at that. And I just thought, well, the minute you start doing that, you start to isolate and and mm. preserve yourself and pull away um which i just think as humans we're meant to be connected and engaging and and basically a lot of again like brain energy that's being projected to preserve your uh or, or what i want to say like when you start feeling like psychological conflict in your mind and you're battling things and i feel like our culture deals with that a lot like ideas of virginity ideas of marriage like the jobs commitment to each other like all these things and and your brain's like i have to overcome this and what i found is the more i open up to intimacy and connection in general the less things i have to overcome mm-hmm. the more i'm able to just be and and know that i'm honoring my relationships yeah it's interesting that touched upon it for me 
what we were talking about earlier today, which was the slut shaming that I encountered since I was 12 years old. Yeah. The first time I even just started talking to boys. I didn't even do anything at that point yet. And well, at that point, I had already been slut shamed as a five year old for kissing a girl, but that's Oh, a I kissed story. a girl when I was five also. Nice. Yeah, my best friend. <laughs> I think it's pretty normal, actually. And, and I think there's this assumption that it's, uh, well, again, it's kind of the same thing. It's it's like packaged and and labeled, and it's like, oh, this is gay behavior, and gay behavior is wrong in our culture, and or whatever, right? Like it just escalates to this new level. And at that age, it's we're very we're actually at our most purest form where we're not judging any of our actions that result in pleasure. Yeah, and we're not even really aware of our gender at that point, except for the ways that we've been separated from each other, right? So you were so you were shamed at five <laughs> for I was, kissing. I was not allowed to interact with that girl again. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's that's painful. Yeah. Really sad. Did you? So when you felt slut shamed at twelve, did you? You had mentioned kind of being pushed into being dressed very feminine and like playing the girl role by your by your parents and like you know were you in like your pink bow and you know and kind of on like on display in that sense or it's funny because now having the lens of bdsm to look at my past through i can see that i was it's called forced feminization which is Mm -hmm. a popular practice uh a lot of men enjoy as a submissive having their dominant dress them up in girl clothes quote-unquote and treating them like a girl because that's humiliating for them which is so many implications socially (laughs) but for me i felt like i grew up forced femme yeah when the whole time i just wanted to cut my hair short wear black you know be who i am now uh and felt a lot of resistance both verbal and societal of like no you're gonna wear mini skirts and makeup and you're gonna be a sexualized female and on top of that not only are you going to present as sexualized, but you're not going to be allowed to act sexualized. So any sort of follow through on the image that I had presented was wrong and not okay. Oh, so well said. You know, every now and then I'm haunted by this moment in high school where one of my good male friends, I think I was talking about how I, maybe I was venting about the way that someone had treated me, you know, as a, as a young woman and, you know, thinking I wanted him or whatever. Mm. And then, and my friend said, and I think we heard these sort of classic statements like, yeah, but why, why would you dress that way then? Mm. And I know it's, it is complicated, but I I felt all this internal conflict because I, I thought, well, I like dressing this way and it's fun and I can dress however I want. And at the same time, I mean, you're hitting on it. It, it is a sexualized feminine presentation, but we're not allowed to acknowledge that. And then there's this weird backlash in like feminist culture too that's going, you don't have to answer that. You can be dressed this way and you don't have to explain yourself. And I'm like, yeah, but my intuition tells me that I do look erotic and I am arousing and you're not, and you're not helping me acknowledge that either. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird, I, it's like, it's almost like they're going in circles mm. and what they're not acknowledging is sexuality. Yeah. At all. It's a hard thing for a lot of people to talk about or even acknowledge point blank. Yeah. So at 12 years old, I'm being dressed this way and then also starting to talk to boys and I accepted a date to the movies. Well, in fairness, I accepted three dates to the same movie. (laughs) (laughs) Asked out by everyone. Um, And then I got called a slut. And I was like, but I haven't even done anything. Yeah. Which led to a very confusing sexual journey that started the very next year when I started what I look back and recognize as having sex with my female friends. Wow. In shrouded in secrecy and shame. Yeah. And even then, I think if I talked to some of them, they wouldn't admit that that's what happened. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I have my own like shame moments with people where it's not gender related. It's just like, I don't want anyone to know this never happened. It's called, yeah. it's called a mulligan. What if, why, what, why, what does that I mean? Know. I've heard it called a mulligan is times. when you just like pretend it never happened. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but like if you're pretending it didn't happen, there is some serious shame issues there that oh, are tied sure. to whatever it is that you're fearing. So maybe t- it takes some time to look at it. Maybe you still don't even have to tell anyone. Yeah. Just know it for yourself so you don't get in that situation again, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Or, and by that I mean not denial, but but like 
what is it that you're fearing and who and what elements need to be removed to give you freedom to be who you want to be? Yeah. And I, on that note, I've actually had to train myself out of pursuing certain types of people who I find attractive. Yeah. I had that as well. Yeah. Because I had that as well. you realize that there's a pattern of, oh, I, t- I tend to pursue this type of person and it tends to go up in flames in this particular way each time. Mm-hmm. Why, why is this? Um, and you can train yourself to be attracted to or not attracted to different types of people just by saying like, oh, I recognize this is a signifier of a type of person who's going to treat me poorly. I'm going to shut that down and stop thinking about or looking at that person and redirect my energy either inwards or to somebody who seems like they won't be that way. I love that you're saying that um, because I don't think we talk about that enough. And I had a moment as well in college. I said, oh, this is a pattern. Mm. I said, I'm not going to attract these types of people anymore. What was what was your type? Um, good question. I think it was, um, he was calling the shots. He was not emotionally available. Mm. And, um, and it was, it was like on his terms, Mm -hmm. basically he was saying, well, I'll tell you when you can come over. And, uh, and right now it's not good. And, you know, partly I go, was that him just drawing boundaries? But it was, it was further than that. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm in control and I tell you what you get to, you know, when you get to psychological domination, desire me or whatever. Yeah. Like these sort of boundaries. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that does not work. Mm-hmm. No, 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 You know, <laughs> and I need to feel equally entitled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I shifted gears. I just said, that's not working. And then I would see there were certain people that had those similar qualities. And I just said, oh, I'm not pursuing. Right. And it's wonderful because we get to learn along the way if we choose to do so. Yeah. And I think identifying the qualities that you do want, right? Like, okay, I go, well, I really like kindness. <laughs> you know, maybe that's it. Maybe that's even just the kernel starter. So, okay, so here I am in a group of people and I just met someone who I would normally be drawn to um, in that psychological way, right? And I'm going to shift to this person who's being really kind and offered me a drink and went and got it and came back with all, you know, or whatever that gesture is or thoughtfulness, some little surprising way of being thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And I started to magnify that and I leaned into actually people who are generous and giving, and I towards would, me, I would venture to bet that it led you to become a more generous and giving person as well. Totally, that's totally, beautiful. yeah, yeah. Actually, that's uh, that's the first time I think I've coined exactly the shift. It was that I said I'm going to start being attracted to people who are generous and giving. Mm. And it was a total like I could feel like the car turning. I was mm. like, like wait, that person's really nice. I'm going to go out with them again. I think some people have this assumption that. Uh, Or actually what I should say is instead of projecting it out, I think what was cool for me to see is um, nothing on the surface changes. And what I mean by that is I think there's these stereotypes of like, oh, nerds are kind to you. And so now I have to date some like nerdy, unattractive person like on the surface, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. I don't mean to like, you know, have anyone who self-identifies as a nerd. You probably aren't. Anyway, whatever. Okay. Well, I consider myself very attractive and also very nerdy. So. Right. But what I mean is, (laughs) right, like there's this idea that I'm a nerd. I must not be. Anyway. Okay. We're going down the rabbit hole. What I mean is, (laughs) so what I mean is, so, so people can have physical types that they appreciate. Mm. And, and I think that the shift is the psychological shift. It's not, oh, I shouldn't seek out people who have tattoos and piercings or something like that that somehow reflects. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, though, because I did find that there were certain physical signifiers that pointed to me that a person was more likely to have certain psychological signifiers. And so I'm not saying that that's a perfect system by any means, but it definitely helped me. um, It helped me in a more animalistic way to kind of like visually ID and block out and like yes is it possible that I dismissed somebody who could have been a great love yes but the probabilistic chances are that they would have ended up continuing a pattern that I didn't want to continue no I I appreciate you adding that that's really interesting I wonder if um can I ask specifically like when what comes to mind yeah um long unkempt hair on males is a is a thing for me was a thing that I was very attractive attracted to and a thing that in my mind there are different like cultural cliques there are people who say like oh we're gonna dress like skaters we're gonna skate value systems there are different value systems there are different aesthetics that go along with those value systems and I find that they're often inextricably linked Mm. like it's rare Mm -hmm. that you'll find someone with an aesthetic and then has a value system of an opposite aesthetic 
Um, and, and maybe they haven't sorted out some of their own conflicts if yeah, they are. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, there was just some, there was a few physical red flags, like even posture. And we talk about, we did a show about posture because that's a big thing. What yeah. are you saying about yourself? Yeah. How that person takes care of their body, their posture, their mannerisms, the way that they project their voice. All of these things were very instinctual cues for me to pick up on that signified deeper psychological things. Yeah. Well, I know I think that's really helpful for our listeners because, um, no, there's, there's truth in that. It's funny. I'm, cause I'm in some ways I'm trying to think about the shift I needed to make. And if those, if there's physical signifiers that are tied to them and I don't know that mine were as, as overt, mm-hmm. um, maybe an assertiveness that, mm. that, the nicer people don't have. I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> Actually, I think it would be, this is almost, I have conversations with people too about why, why I choose certain lovers and, um, and people go, well, what makes you choose someone? Right. And, uh, and I, and it's so nuanced, but, but I do feel on a very basic level in a conversation. So using just words, uh, I'll be analyzing. I mean, I am analyzing or I'll bring up certain things and, and based on their answer on how they would approach it, tells me are they a generous attentive lover you know are they um sensitive and intuitive Mm. uh in a really subtle way are they reading my physical cues i was just about to mention i bet on a certain level you're not only analyzing the words coming out of their mouth but their body language and the facial expressions and the flickers in their eyes while they're saying it mean a lot to you on a subconscious level yeah yeah and you know what's funny is recently i actually uh had a date with someone who um, confided that he had been interested for many years, right? And he said, um, he's like, I mean, surely you knew. (laughs) And I said, I mean, sure. Uh, I said, but I really appreciated that you didn't cross a line when you knew that I was already engaged with someone in a way that I was not available to you. And what that said to me was he has extreme emotional intelligence and he read the signals and he waited. And, you know, now... It, I, I fear that people go, oh, I'm supposed to wait. And it's like, well, no, it's this particular situation was read appropriately. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and handled, like he deftly handled it, you mm-hmm. know? And, and that's then, very attractive. Right, exactly. I said, well, this is someone I trust, right? I feel safe mm. in his ability to read my needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great quality to look for in a lover or a friend in general. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Across the board. Yeah, Uh Quickly, something interesting came up for me when we were talking about the physical types of person, because I thought about another thing I had run into in another pattern I had run into in my personal life was choosing intimate relationships, just friendships with women who are all physically very different, but all have certain personality characteristics of my mother. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah. And so bringing in a dynamic to the relationship that was unintentional and ultimately led to its demise. I, yes. Actually, I think I've, lately I've been uh, reanalyzing my personal relationships as well with friendships because I started noticing a pattern in the men and the women. Um, it's funny, just now I think it clicked and I go, oh, oh, maybe it's my mom too. Because in some <laughs> ways, the, the people that you choose as friends and not lovers, um, it's like, who is the most intimate version of that? And I guess it's my mother, my sister, you know, these people, familial relations. Yeah. Um, well, and on the same gender side, you know, so you have that intimacy where maybe we did bathe together or we do sleep in the same bed or we, you know, um, so there's that safety and what did that relationship look like? And so is that, you know, am I mirroring that in my friendships? The answer is yes. (laughs) And, and which parts are unhealthy. Yeah. And of course they're in your life because there are certain parts that are great and are feeding you, Mm -hmm. but do you need them? And can you shift the car into yeah. another direction? And it's funny because the female romantic partners that I choose never remind me of my mother. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and maybe you're, they're satisfying you, what you didn't get from her. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. All of our motives for attraction are completely nuanced and mostly subtextual. Yeah. And so, it's- And maybe unearthed through a cuddle dom session. you'll be walking but bring a journal so that when you're driving home you can you know (laughs) record it in your memo function yeah just just talk to your phone note to self (laughs) yeah yeah i learned a lot about myself today um on that note we're gonna wrap up thank you so much for sharing your own journey and insights yeah um 
guys, we're talking with Tate. She has a practice called cuddledom.com. Can I use my pronoun, please? I'm so sorry. Okay. I did it again. That's okay. It's fine. Okay, please, can you articulate for our listeners? So, Tate, I, I keep using, I'm very, like, daft in that point of, oh, okay. of pronouns. You probably just don't have a lot of practice. I don't, exactly. Yeah. I'm embedded in a queer community that when we introduce ourselves, we just say, oh, hi, my name's Tate, and I use they, them, there's pronouns. So right. it's very automatic for me, and I recognize that that's not mainstream yet. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I use they, them, there's pronouns, because I feel not, I don't feel aligned with either of the binary genders that society largely says that we are yeah okay wait before we end the show i want to talk about it quickly because i i i mentioned to you that i have this thing where i said oh i feel that i present a certain construct and i know that i'm not that in a way or like Mm. my identity isn't and actually when we were talking about sexualized sexualized femininity i also have a space where i enjoy doing that right Mm -hmm. but i choose it Mm -hmm. and i think that's the big difference is that when you were 12 you couldn't choose it you didn't understand the choices and i'm and then as an adult like once i've sort of exercised all these different ways which i also went you know more of a gender neutral direction and then i went hyper feminine and then i went sexualized feminine and then i went you know and and it's like hitting all of them and then you go oh well you know today i feel like this i want to be this it's much more fluid than we originally imagined yeah and i think for me i just never yeah, I never like changed the vocabulary. Like I, I'm like, oh, no, but I get that it's important. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I think, wonder about my own kind of neglect of it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something worth exploring, wondering how you identify yourself beyond the constructs that were handed to you. Uh, and I don't think that every single person once exploring this will say, oh, I don't want a gendered pronoun. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that's actually kind of rare. Yeah. So I often find myself the only person in a room who uses they, then there's pronouns. Right. But it's new. Yeah. But of course, as we're talking about it at the end of the episode, I'm like, of course, I should have introduced you in that capacity. Oh, Uh, here we are. Yeah, exactly. But uh, thank you for joining us. And I think you brought a lot of really wonderful insights. And I'm so grateful to have had you as a guest. Thank you. This was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, So again, you can check them out at cuddledom.com. Thank you. Thank you. D-O-M-M-E. And, uh, and as you all know, you're listening to TNA Talk Sex. You can check us out on social media at TA Talk Sex. Uh, Tate and I are going to do a little video that you can find on YouTube where she answers some fun questions in our In Bed With series, which uh, there's a lot of videos up there on our YouTube page. Um, so TA Talk Sex on all social media. And uh, this is episode 140 because sex isn't ever just about sex. Whoop, whoop. <laughs>